BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello to the listeners of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He is a classicist, a political and military historian, and he has a farm and works on a farm. He writes a lot about farming. So today is our um, weekend edition, and we have a special guest, Dr. Stephen Quay, who is the co-founder of Atos Therapeutics, which develops therapeutics and delivery methods for oncology and infectious diseases. He has founded six startups and invented seven FDA-approved pharmaceuticals. His most recent books, and the reason that we're, he's here to talk to us, is about COVID. And the recent books are The Origin of the Virus, The Hidden Truths Behind the Microbe That Killed Millions of People, and Stay Safe, A Physician's Guide to Survive to Survival. Um, oh, sorry. It must have said survival in, in under COVID. Is that what it, or did I miss the title there, Stephen? That's perfect. Great. So we welcome Stephen. We're going to take a break right now and we'll come back and hear uh, n- latest news on the, especially the origins of the virus. We'll be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We're back and I am going to turn the show over to Victor. So Victor, have have the show. Thank you. And I think some of our listeners remember that kind of spectacular podcast we had with Dr. Stephen Quay. That was on August 1st, so it's been quite a while. And if you recall that, he was very clear and gave a very detailed exegesis why the the likelihood, he didn't say it was impossible there was a natural uh, origins of COVID, but he gave a fact after fact, data point after data point that would lead one to believe that this coronavirus was engineered and leaked out of or leaked out of the virus. And since that August out of the lab and now since that August 1st interview, Stephen's been on Fox News. He's been on international media. He's testified before the U.S. Congress. And I, I, I don't think it's an understatement to, to suggest that his thesis has lent the scientific support that really influenced the Department of Energy, the FBI, to concur. And what was once revolutionary and even by the left called disinformation has now become orthodoxy in large part to people like Stephen Quay. So, um, Stephen, I'm so happy you're here today and you've you've agreed to press on with what's happened in the last uh, few months. And we have some questions for you, obviously. It's been, I guess, seven months since we spoke. And uh, what's new since we spoke last time? What's the your any new research on the understanding of this this crazy SARS-CoV dash one or two virus? I should say. Yeah, yeah, it's great to be on, Victor. And you know, there there is. It's uh, I sometimes feel like it's a whack-a-mole exercise where. You, you put out all the facts, you, it's sort of settled, and then there's sort of a new set of facts that come up. So um, literally in the last week, 10 days, um, 
a new animal has come into the vernacular for most people <laughs> around COVID, and it's it's a it's a, something called a raccoon dog. So um, that that would be the latest thing that's happened. There's a lot swirling around that that we should we should get into, but um, just at a, at a high level for your for your listeners, the two ways that a pandemic can begin in, in you know in principle and then how did this one in in practice is you know, what's called a, a spillover where there's a there's a virus in an animal in nature a human comes in contact with that animal and it, it jumps to the human uh, in what's called a zoonosis the other is a laboratory acquired infection where um, the same process is kind of going on it's an animal in a laboratory or maybe a cells from an animal in a laboratory, the laboratory person gets infected and then it becomes a laboratory acquired infection or a lab leak. Now, in the particulars of of, of, of the COVID-19 and, and this pandemic we've had, those two uh, competing uh, sources have kind of been taken down to an actual address and a location in Wuhan. So there's something called the Hunan Seafood Market, which is where the people who think it came from nature or spillover is, that's kind of the only location they have in their in their deck of cards. And then uh, the data that I'm presenting and I've talked about indicates that a nearby laboratory called the Wuhan Institute of Virology is the source. So what's happened in the last 10 days is that uh, some Western scientists have come forward with some evidence that they have, and I think we should we should tease into the details of it, but I'll you know, yeah. the, the high level version is some some new evidence that it that there was a raccoon dog that might have been infected in the market. It's generated a lot of controversy. Now, was there, was the raccoon dog for for sale for meat consumption? It, it is. So raccoon dogs are uh, not an expert on this, but I think their sale is more for in the in the uh, fur industry. Uh -huh. So they have an attractive coat. Uh, more than their meat, but uh, but I think perhaps in China, you know, both uh, both uses of raccoon dogs are are made. Yeah, I know you're going to get into it in a second, but because I'm still confused when I read the Atlantic article. So we had these concurrences by state, federal agencies, especially the Department of Energy and FBI. Then all of a sudden, this data comes out to. I guess reboot or recalibrate what was a somnolent or sort of morbid thesis that it was uh, from the meat market. But my question is, and I know that you can get into this, where did the data come that the Americans had access? Did they find it empirically on their own? Did they go over there or was it given to them by the Chinese Communist government? You know that's a very good uh, very good point and I think I think as we as we teach and talk about how to evaluate science uh the first thing I do as a scientist and maybe the first thing your your readers do who may be lay people but want to try to understand science is to look at the methods where did the data come from what was its propriety how did it work and only then look at the results so in this case um, there is a German-based data set it's up in the cloud called GSAID, capital G I S A I D and it's it's a repository that was put in place during influenza to collect genetic information about influenza viruses, uh, but it became the go-to place to deposit um, SARS-CoV-2 uh, sequences. And so, um, you know, a, a, you know, in, a little in the weeds from a nerdy science here, but there are 15 million uh, patient specimens on this database right now as we speak from SARS-CoV-2. It's the most incredible collection of genetic information that's ever been created. So what what apparently happened, because I, I have to say apparently because we don't know the truth about it, but uh, 17 Western virologists happened to be scanning this 15 million virus database, which I scan every day, but uh, not in the way they must have done it by accident. And they found deposited some raw data from about two years earlier um, on, you know, on the, on this site. And they got all excited and they downloaded it and they analyzed it and they called the WHO and had a meeting. Now, when they reached out to the Chinese generators of this data to say, Hey, we'd like to analyze this. And, you know, do we have your permission? Uh, it was taken down from GSAT. It was no longer available to the Western scientists. Uh, but they went ahead anyway uh, in kind of a, uh, an unusual bridge of the guardrails around the ethics of science, taking someone else's data 
and that's not public and, and analyzing it and publishing about it before you have permission to do so. They went in and did that. But that's that's where this Atlantic article uh, came from, which was one could even say could use the term stolen data uh, for this analysis. Did they take it? Did they did the Chinese government or the people who were operatives of the Chinese government, did they take the data away from them because they wanted to have the pr first priority in exposing it, publishing it? Or were they embarrassed, you think, that the data would be further examined by other Western scientists and there would be it would be problematic about how it appeared there or whether you could further investigate it? Or was it just a proprietary interest of rights of first publication? Yeah. So this is going to be a, a little nuanced conversation because there was a six hour ago update. So, uh, you know, Victor, you're hearing from someone in the in the weeds of this and maybe for the first one in the world. So what happened six hours ago was the Chinese did release the data set. So I believe so the way I would put that together, putting myself in the shoes of Dr. George Gao, who's the former head of the CDC, he was he was in charge of this. He's a Western trained virologist. Uh, he was contacting Robert Redfield, you know, over the weekend of New Year's Eve 2019. There's some very interesting backstory on that particular conversation. But anyway, this is George's data. Uh, it was effectively taken and analyzed by these Western scientists. News read, you know, news articles were published. And he he was annoyed, I guess, by them taking his data because seven days later, he has now published his own analysis, which is much more detailed than the Western scientists, probably because he's had a year to put it together. It, it challenges some of that. So there's 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 a bit of a difference in the actual data itself. But I think it was it was taken down because he was very close to putting out himself. He now has put it out himself. So we have these very interesting competing analyses of stolen data by the Western virologists and and the actual data by the Chinese virologists that show some very significant differences in the raw data and especially then in the conclusions you can draw from that. So Does it affect that would it affect the ultimate um, analysis or conclusion that it came from a natural rather than a lab source? Well, I see that's a, that's a very important higher question. And and again, we've gotten into the weeds now. Yeah. It's impossible that this. No, I misspoke. <laughs> Too strong. Um, it is a very um, highly unlikely that anything in these specimens is probative about the origin because they are all taken in January of 2020. And we know from the, the you know, the uh, oh, State Department yeah. has a council in Wuhan. We know, for example, that the, the Western, you know, the State Department uh, head of that council was has publicly talked about the fact that schools were closed in Wuhan in the month of December because of uh, of an infectious disease that was spreading. We now know it was SARS-CoV-2. So it really is is immaterial about what was going on in January in a market if throughout a city of 11 million people the schools are closed and the kids and are so what you're school. what you're saying Stephen is that the conventional wisdom that there is no prior animal carrier known before the first human uh, infected person is unchanged and that this raccoon dog could have gotten it from a human rather than given it to a human. Is that it? Well, that, well, that, yeah, that, that's, that's exactly what the, the raw data looks like. Um, we, we why, why that. did they make such a big deal if it, it, it's, it doesn't seem to be changing what you, you explained to our audience in August of last year? What, what what's the, what was behind the Atlantic? Was it a political idea that they didn't like the idea that Anybody who had said the Wuhan lab was going to be vindicated and there was a revisionist something, but it doesn't seem like it's a very strong argument. You know, I, I certainly I, I don't want to get into motivation because it's, yeah. you know, I don't read minds, but there is a consistent pattern of a half dozen to there, there's a hardcore of a half dozen Western virologists who seem to be hell bent on making this uh, a natural spillover despite despite scientific data, not not because of it. And they, um, uh, you know, for example, again, this is kind of in the weeds, but they published a paper showing that the, in their opinion, there were two spillovers. Uh, in order for them to do that, they had to ignore 20, 20 virus sequences in humans that would blow up that hypothesis. And now uh, Steve Quay and his colleagues have gotten a peer-reviewed paper published showing that the the censorship of those 20 genomes was completely unwarranted. And that if you include those, there is no scientific evidence for two spillovers. It's, it's a one spillover event. And yes, you know, they, they put themselves out there with sort of a crazy hypothesis. And 
we spent a lot of time disproving it, but it was kind of something that you'd probably, you know, you'd give a D to a college student if he proposed it in a in a in a term paper in virology. Yeah, I always look at the the contradictory, sequential contradictory statements of Ante Fauci. And I went back preparing for this, and he's gone from no chance to if you really want to speculate, there may be a chance until most recently, we'll never know. So I don't want to go down on one side or the other. So the the, dev- the evidence must be affecting him, of all people, because he's radically changed his insistence that it was only and could only be a natural uh, origin. So, but I think that I get the impression just as a, a lay person, when I look at the argument in the media, in the media, and I look, but that's synonymous with left wing media, that the argument is moving over to your group's um, natural origins, and that this this doesn't seem like it's going to change it. Uh, no, this certainly won't change it. I think one of the one of the issues that Dr. Fauci's had to deal with is uh, freedom of information lawsuits have generated uh, reams of emails that are now, you know, belying their public statements that it couldn't come from a market. Uh, this book, it couldn't come from a laboratory, um, and you know, et cetera. There, there, <laughs> there's there's some pretty revealing emails about the fact that wow, this this thing really looks bioengineered. There's, I really see no way this could have come from nature, and yet these same people are saying, you know, publicly soon afterwards, well, you know, the the genetics, you know, it's it's consistent with a natural origin. I mean, it's just, I don't know how these people can look at themselves in the mirror. I, I, I don't and do this. We're going to take a quick break and we get back. Uh, I think we should get into this topic of the collapse of ethics in scientific and peer review papers because it's central to the issue of the origin of this virus that affects us all. And we'll be right back. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back with Dr. Stephen Quay. We're talking about the recent news of a raccoon dog, a very strange story that was an attempt to bring back the conversation to a natural or an animal source of the COVID. I don't think it, it, from what we can tell, it's going to be convincing, but it brings up a larger question that... Tell us something about these peer review. You keep mentioning peer review. I know as a classicist, I've written maybe 20 or 30 peer reviews. I've always thought you can, if they liked you, they would get a peer review that would not be favorable. If they, you know, would be favorable if you didn't like you, the editors. I'm not being entirely cynical, but it seems like in the medical field, you have pharmaceutical leverage. You have this multi-billion, $50 billion grant industry that Fauci and Collins control. And then you've got uh, academic concerns about, do you want to contradict somebody powerful? And all of them kind of converge and make it very difficult for us to believe that there is something that's completely disinterested, blind peer review. Is that is that too much to say? You know, I think that's probably the, the where we should end up after this conversation. But yeah. I mean, if I can just give a little history of my own experience. Yeah, I'd like how, to hear it. Let's hear it. Let's how hear science, it. because science is in some ways one of the most powerful truth finding activities, you know, of, of, of civilization. The the invention of the thinking process of science was is kind of one of the touchstones about the, you know that led us to the this kind of amazing advanced technology world we're in. But so. Um, 
I have 390 uh, publications that have been peer reviewed. And the process is that you send a manuscript to a journal that you want to have published. It's anonymously sent to two or three experts in the field. They anonymously provide feedback, both spelling errors or grammatical errors. I don't understand the sentence and also the detailed work. And, and sometimes you actually, they send you back into the laboratory. Uh, I like the peer review. It, you, you know, you sweat bullets to get through it, but the paper always comes out better for the process. And it's been a, it's, it's been one of the, one of the, the tools that has been useful. Yes. There's a political aspect to it. Yes. There's documentation that, um, you know, a Harvard, a Harvard generated manuscript gets, gets better, uh, gets is more favorably reviewed than a community college manuscript, but then maybe maybe they're at Harvard and not a community college for other reasons. So it's a confounding, you know, exercise. But but it's it's a it's a generally a good process. The amazing thing that I had never had before in well, I guess over 40 years of science um, was what the what 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 became called the peer review process in coronavirus research, which is not the peer review process. You send it, you send a manuscript to a journal and and Literally, a secretary at the journal sends you back not a, not an analysis of the manuscript, nothing about the science, and just basically says, "This is not appropriate for our journal. We're not going to review it. Good luck." Uh, and then the people have the audacity to say, "Well, you know, you know, Quay's papers aren't peer reviewed, and so therefore they can't be taken with with uh, you know need to be taken with a grain of salt." I, I'm part of a group that uh, you know I can't speak for the Paris group, but there's 26 of us. I've gone off into biotech, so perhaps I'm corrupted because of that. But the other 25 folks in this group are card-carrying academics, you know, no industrial ties, hardcore scientists, and we all have exactly the same experience. If you write about a lab, if you write about evidence in, on the SARS-CoV-2, evidence inside the virus, for example, it's not he said, she said, but it's the virus speaking. If you write papers about what's going on inside the virus sequence, you can't get them published uh, in a peer-reviewed process. Where does it start? If you trace, that? if you trace that, if I could just ask. So they have a boilerplate response where a particular paper is sent to them, and if it's on a topic of a, of subjects that I guess we'd use the word taboo or incorrect or whatever, who who is doing this? Is there some central command internationally, Western, European, American? Or is it spelled out? You think in writing, or is it just? Because it sounds like almost there's a, a boilerplate somewhere that suggests that peer-reviewed journals should not go into these particular areas because they would give ammunition to people we don't want to give ammunition to. Is that is there somebody? Is there a hierarchy somewhere? Well, it, it, it it's possibly that. I mean, and and I'm going to get. So one of the challenges for peer-reviewed process in the modern scientific journals is that. Um, you know, journals are not a great money-making business, so they they take support from various directions. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence that some of the most important Western um, journals, you know, the journals that we would we would want to be published in, the ones that a, a single paper for a young academic can get you tenure, um, are receiving financial support uh, from corporations or entities associated with China. And so um, without knowing what's going on, you know, behind the scenes, that certainly looks like a conflict of interest. And it certainly is consistent with some sort of um, central censorship based on, you know, their their financial uh, support. So when we had the Peter Daszak um, investigation, when they had that team, as you remember, and I think we talked about it earlier that supposedly went over to China, and I don't think they got very full disclosure. And then they published the findings that it was a natural uh, origins. At that time, wasn't were there stories that were out in the public that Lancet, for example, would take one prestigious journal, had received some help from concerns that were affiliated with the uh, Chinese government? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, that's what I thought. I thought. So did they retract just often? I, this is a we're just just for an exception before we get back to the topic. Did they retract that formal investigation? So so did some, didn't some people disown or say that they did not want to maintain or continue their findings with the group? Yeah, let me uh, there's there's it's a little bit more complicated. Okay. So there were um, early in the process within the first six months of 2022. 
proposed investigations were, were, were made. One was by the WHO uh, and one was by the Lancet Commission, in which uh, Jeff Sachs was the head of the Lancet Commission one. Um, effectively, you know, Dr. Tedros at the WHO was the head of, the, of that particular exercise. It was the WHO team that, that went to Wuhan in uh, January 2021, spent two weeks there, uh, you know, were, were shepherded around. It was a curated tour of various facilities. And then that report, which was written and, and is published under the WHO uh, umbrella, was the one in which they said it was uh, most likely to have come from nature, least likely to come from a laboratory. Uh, and that final vote was, of course, an, an, uh, a raise your hand in a room where uh, all of the Chinese uh, folks there had CCP minders. So there were there were military folks in the room with you. I think the mm. other the other Lancet Commission, which you know literally blew up on takeoff, um, was Jeff Sachs' effort where he was made chairman of a committee. Uh, Peter Daszak and others were 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 on the commission, and. He, I think, has been very public about the fact that he began asking for, you know, simple things from some of the people who are on that commission, simple things with respect to data or findings or, or these sorts of things. And when he got stonewalled, uh, he, you know, he he went public with that. And so that that particular committee, I'm not sure, is still has a charter to do an investigation uh, that I'm unclear of. But in any case, he's been very public about the fact that the conflict of interest of the folks that were put on that um made it impossible for it to go forward in a in a in a good fashion he was unaware of the conflicts and when you know when he appointed people uh because he's you know he's a brilliant man but not mm -hmm. a virologist so he realized that you know too late in the game that some of the folks he put on there had pretty strong conflict of interest they expressed that by not being helpful in his you know casual inquiries behind the scenes and he went forward with public and i think uh, Dr. Daszak had to step off the commission, uh, and as I said, I think he's done other things, and I think basically they've they've shut down that endeavor. It did, though, seem that old Roman idea that a rumor crosses the world before the correction, you know, Churchill paraphrased it before the correction puts its pants on or the truth, but it did seem that for, I don't know, four or five weeks, it did a lot of damage to the conversation or the the debate because it was stamped with at least in the American media, that this is the Lancet and this is and then it and then when we found out these things that you just detailed, it didn't seem to get the same publicity as the original findings. I just say that because when I had been talking to people in the universities and when I speak, people will always cite that. So, Victor, you're wrong. The Lancet proved it. It's conclusive. And you say, no, no, there's, it, it's under revision now or there's probably it, it didn't it didn't really the revisionism. And the truth didn't really hasn't fully caught up, I think, with the with the flawed analysis. Yeah, I mean, as I as I like to say it, you know, the, the mistaken uh, sensational headlines is on page one, and the corrections, you know, on page page twenty. Uh, they are, they are. Uh, we want to get in because we're going to in our last third, we're going to get uh, into. So I think it's going to be a little scary. We're going to talk to to Dr. Quay about some of the research that continues that I guess we could say legitimately is very dangerous. And I think we've seen him in Congress and, and on Laura Ingram and other venues to warn us about it. So we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. And we're right back with Dr. Stephen Quay. Stephen, is there anything else you want to talk about this esoteric, for us it's esoteric, process of how the inner workings of international immunology and virology work as far as publication and dissemination of knowledge? My, my, my only suggestion is, or my curiosity, I should say, is how much money roughly does the NIH or the National Institute for Allergies and Infectious Disease or CDC, how many billions of dollars is it? You hear these these fabulous sums of 40 or 50 billion that are dispersed by a very small coterie of people in Washington. Is that is that approximately yeah. true? Yeah, th that's approximately true. And in fact, if you look at the timeline of it, um, really, uh, actually, the 911 event and scientists stepping forward to say, hey, well, you know, there's there's a there's a bioweapon, uh, you know, possibility for the next uh, thing here, and we need money to prevent it. Biodefense became a big part. So, uh, you know, 
part uh, of the of the uh, of Dr. Fauci's budget looked extraordinary from just the context of well, you know, where is infectious disease in the scheme of things in American medicine? You know, vis-a-vis cancer, heart disease, or the others, which are massively greater than infectious diseases. But behind the scenes, his programs were in the biodefense area, uh, with DoD, you know, funding and those sorts of things. So that was kind of the 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 stimulus was was the 9/11, and you know, we then then we had the anthrax yes. uh, problem, uh, and, and then he, he took great advantage of that to to try to become the the savior of the of the next pandemic, uh, which is kind of ironic. One of the things, and that was sort of the gain of function engineering, both either to, I don't want to impugn anybody's motives, but either to create a bioweapon or in the process of creating it to learn how not to use it, but to to learn how to defend against it. Was that the the rationale? Well, I, the, public, the public justification for gain of function research has always been, um, you know, there there could be a virus that that could end end civilization. So let's try to make it in the lab. Figure out how it would possibly work if it came from nature. Uh, develop uh, therapeutics and vaccines against it uh, in the in the context of you know saving saving humanity. Uh, I haven't figured out quite how to put forward an analysis, but actually, all of my work in in, in terms of quantification, but all of my work shows that nature is not nearly as as vicious in this space as <laughs> as the humans are. Uh, the last two coronavirus spillovers from animals to humans infected about 10,000 people, uh, killed under 1,000. Uh, they were truly from nature, and that's truly the level of natural impact in the human population. And, and now we have a virus that's you know killed 20 plus million, infected 2 billion. Uh, and that delta between you know 10,000 and 2 billion is kind of the quantification of the impact of what you can do in a laboratory versus what nature does on its own. That question that kind of begs a question has been asked by people in the U.S. Congress, and I, I, that some of that stunning testimony. I think you were involved in some of it, both in the media and Congress. When people have asked the question, "Has there can anybody cite any major viral breakthrough that would justify the risk of gain of function research?" And it was it was amazing to see so many people said they doubt it. But well, yeah, the cost benefit Victor, analysis is not worth it. Is that true? Yeah, I you know I try to be very deliberate. So I've looked at twenty two hundred papers that were 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 found via a search of the library of Con- library of medicine, excuse me, uh, that are related to gain of function. I've scanned the abstracts, scanned the titles, uh, and put you know putting to the entire package together. I don't believe that there's been a a contribution to. Uh, uh, health policy or, or pandemic preparedness. Uh, I think the, the demonstration is the proof is in the pudding here where um, the vaccine was perhaps imperfect, but nonetheless, it was it began to be manufactured within a week of having the sequence. So all of this anticipatory making viruses in the lab is never going to be useful for the virus that, that you know, first appears in the hospital. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think we've, we've answered that question pretty emphatically. When I, when you just, to pause, and then we're going to go into this third this third area that's pretty scary, as I said. When you look at your own career, when we talked to you in August, you were you were starting to, your lone wolf views, and you were adding. I think the role that you played was for other doctors who were making these arguments. Immunologists, you were giving them data and sequence support that that really helped it. Do you feel that yourself? The way the medical treat uh, community, say in the United States or internationally, have they accepted what you've done? Do you feel like you're getting because of just the sheer weight of the evidence that people are starting to back off from criticism to agreement to inviting you more places? Because I don't think you're going to get an apology. But do you do you see the argument going in your way, and you can feel it in your own professional career? Well, I do, Victor, and I think it's more it's more concrete than that. We now have had uh, two significant papers in this space peer reviewed and accepted for publication. And I can tell you, again, I don't know who the, the they are because they're anonymous, but the reviewers came back with glowing testaments. This has to get published. This is really important work, et cetera. So I think there's a silent majority, even you know, all, all, all populations probably have a silent majority. And I think the, the scientists, the virologists in the world also do. And I think they're fed up. And I think they're tired of, of, of trying to pretend uh, things that are not scientifically sound. I think they want to be able to be 
uh, a, a truth teller based on their experience. And you, you just can't do it with some of the papers that have been written in the in the spillover space. They're just they're just scientifically unsound. They fool journalists. They get into the New York Times and things. But, a, you know, a card carrying virologist is embarrassed by some of the findings. And I think it's starting to show up. So it's it's pretty gratifying when you look at the role of Dr. Fauci with this multi-billion dollar research grant program basically in his hands, and he has said things in the past as diverse as I am the science, or he testified under oath, as I remember, when asked specifically, did you fund via Echo Health through subsidies that ended up in Wuhan gain of function? He said, this is not gain of function. The fact that he is now retired the I that and he doesn't have the financial or maybe his successor does, but he doesn't have that financial leverage. I don't think anybody's going to believe anymore that when he says that there was no gain of function research taking place in Wuhan with some help from American expertise. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think it's completely fair. And um, one, one of the interesting that happens in this kind of space is you, I've been looking at this for three years and every now and then you look at something you saw, you know, in year one or in month one or that sort of thing, and you see it with new new eyes. So there's this famous set of uh, cables that came from the U.S. State Department in 2018. Uh, they visited the one Institute of Virology. They sent a cable back to back to Washington, D.C., you know, with alarms going off. And this was in the Washington Post contemporaneously at that time. And one of the titles of the section is U.S. Funding of Gain-of-Function Research at the WIV. And, you know, that's the bold title of a whole section where they talk about the work being done there. And so um, I had forgotten, you know, that that was in the original cables from 2018. But it's just it's so disingenuous to say we weren't funding it when you know, a, a non-scientist State Department guy is explaining in a cable back to another non-scientist uh, why the gain-of-function research that is being funded is so dangerous. Are you optimistic that because he had a 40-year, 30 or 40-year tenure, that his Fauci's retirement will allow people to feel that they're somewhat liberated from being leveraged by their grants that go to their labs and research? You know, I think the best way to answer that is just with a simple fact, which is the new head of of the uh, of the institute is has been is his longtime associate that has been in place for a very long time. If there was a new, if say there was a new administration, and someone was to ask you, how do we um, break up this monopoly at these federal institutions that have such huge budgets, so that we can we can be more open-minded and we don't have this artificial consensus and we don't try to use federal monies to warp or massage the types of research results that are very important to all Americans. What would you recommend? How do you, how do you reform it? Well, I, I always hate recommending making government bigger. It's, it's always a nightmare to do that. But so in, in atomic energy, you have the DOD funding research and you have the atomic energy agency overseeing that research. Um, what had happened under, uh, you know, Obama and, and Trump and now uh, uh, Biden is that the oversight is within the uh, NIAID itself. And so uh, you have to separate those two because they've clearly demonstrated in spades uh, they don't have the ability to self-regulate. Um, they probably never should have given that option. They should have been that should have been taken away in the beginning. But that, that would be a simple fix is to yeah. take that out of there. Let's talk. You you talked a lot about uh, these new. You mentioned MERS and influenza and the Nipah. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And what what when you look at your field and you read journals and you have access to conversations with people, what type of research is really starting to worry you? Because I know you've mentioned that there are research projects, I guess, going on in China that have the propensity to make this COVID-19 virus look uh, very, <laughs> I don't want to say innocuous. I had long COVID for 10 months and I've had some problems after that. But these things, what, what they're doing now, it doesn't seem like they've learned from anything. And there's things that are going out there in research labs that are even more dangerous. Is that is that what you 
or trying to tell us that we have to be very careful. Yeah, Victor. Because... So, so what what I have done with a team of international scientists, and it's you know everything is a teamwork, and these folks are just incredible. We're all volunteering our time, but anyway, over the last three years, we've developed what we call forensic metagenomics analysis. So, focus on the word forensic. But basically, I can sit at any computer in the world and using the software tools we developed. Um, if a laboratory somewhere in the world has published a paper or or done any sort of work in which their raw uh, machine reads, the, the most basic research reads they get, have been deposited somewhere in the world in a database, I can interrogate those and I can basically jump into that laboratory and see what's going on over the last 18 months and throughout the entire building. The reason that's possible is these machines are so sensitive, they amplify everything going on. So... Uh, in, our, in validating this work, for example, we showed that a patient specimen from a hospital in Wuhan sent to the Wellness Neurology had honeysuckle genes in the patient, you know, in the patient's throat. Now, the patient obviously didn't have honeysuckle genes in their throat, but the Wellness Neurology had published a paper on honeysuckle genes about a year earlier, and the, the, the remnants of that research were still kicking around the laboratory even a year later and wow. showing up in every specimen they ever did. So once those tools are validated and put in place, we've now interrogated three different kinds of data sets, all done since the pandemic. So, you know, if I'm inside the Women's Virology and I've said, oh, my gosh, we had a laboratory escape, the world survived, but maybe I should change my, my, my direction of research. That would be kind of thing I would do. They didn't do that. So post January 2020, we found MERS virus. Uh, being manipulated in a synthetic biology fashion, uh, switching out major components that made it more infective. We found influenza virus being done with the same thing. And we found Nipah virus. Um, Nipah and Ebola are always competing to be the most deadly virus. So Nipah is between 60 and 90%, depending on the, the outbreak. But both Nipah, this influenza and MERS have the advantage that they're currently, without this manipulation, not very transmissible. It's hard to transmit. Uh, it burns out quickly in, in human successions. But if this experiments are done in the fashion that SARS-2 was created, where it was purposefully, it looks purposely to have been manipulated to increase uh, transmissibility, these are, these are civilization-ending events. Why do I say that? Well, the Black Plague, which was a four-year process, not a virus, but a bacteria, but nonetheless, was a 30% lethal event in the Middle Ages. And the population at the end of the four years was set back about 300 years, and it took 200 years for the population to regain where it was at the beginning. Um, so I'm working with a fellow uh, in Florida uh, to do an analysis in order to understand the potential impact of the work that's currently being done with viruses from 30 to 60% lethal. Uh, we're doing uh, what's called a Monte Carlo analysis, where we basically imagine a hypothetical virus with two properties. It has a certain transmissibility. It has a certain lethality. And we're looking at the four pillars that we see of modern civilization. That is the energy supply chain, the food supply yes. chain, uh, police and fire uh, services, and hospital services, those four parameters. And we're doing an analysis of how does civilization, how, how, how bad does a virus have to be to break civilization? My Seat of the pants is that a 10% virus with a transmissibility of SARS, COVID-2 would do the trick. But what I'm what I'm trying to demonstrate to these folks in Congress is look at, we know these people are doing these, this dangerous research with these viruses. If I can demonstrate that this will set us back 500 years, 20 generations of my family, your family, uh, we need to take, we need to be more serious about this. I mean, I'm actually jealous of the, of the climate change folks who can look at a, a 100 degree, very gradual one or two degree excursion and get the entire world mobilized to change that. Uh, I'm, you know, here we won't, we won't survive a, a pandemic of one of these viruses that I believe is more than about 10 or 12% lethal. With the Let me ask you a question at this point. When you look back at, the SARS virus, and I mean, 600,000 or so wasn't a great amount of money, but there were expertise and maybe even equipment transfers. Do you think in retrospect that the Wuhan lab, the indigenous people who were working there had the ability without American or European help to create this gain of function virus? 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to really frame that very very carefully. Yes, because um, I know it's very in controversial. In the following sense, is the the development of the mice that had human lungs that allowed you know teaching it how to infect humans, uh, the the ability to insert furin sites in a silent fashion. It's called the noceum technology. All of the technologies themselves are Western. Um, once they're published, of course, they become accessible to anyone in the world. Um, I think it's obviously much better to learn at the bench side of a of an expert who's created technology. So we did, you know, we did train Wuhan scientists in in uh, in uh, Galveston, Texas, at a facility there, and and in North Carolina, we did transfer, you know, the mice. We we gave them our mice, uh, and we gave them a little bit of money. Um, so I think I think hypothetically, a good scientist could learn from the publications. Um, there probably are little nuances that you wouldn't get. But um, once but, something is published, it, it kind of becomes accessible. And so uh, when you talk the about these should... viruses, though, that are going to have this exponential increase in, in both morbidity and in transmissibility, you almost give us the impression that maybe China's huge program of having so many thousands of medical experts trained in American and Western universities, they, they've got to the point where they can do this very sophisticated, but very, very deadly, deadly research without a lot of American input anymore, because they, they have access to international data, and they've been trained by the West, and, and there's no controls over them, as far as Western uh, sanctions or cutting off entrance to universities or senior graduate students cannot come here while you're engaged in this type of that it's the horse has sort of left the barn you're you're pretty close to being accurate one little one small aspect that i spoke of with uh, in in congress was to put export controls on the machines that do uh, the sequencing or do the creation of this we're still probably 5 years ahead of them in the technology and so um it's you know it's like the it's like the, uh, the uranium centrifuges yes. which we don't we don't ship into certain places um, and in my proposal, I actually talked confidentially about some things you could you could put on the machines that would allow you know forensic examination of a laboratory with probable cause, a law enforcement agency. So had that been in place, we would have you know courtroom acceptable day evidence um, for some of this malfeasance. I know that we we export Abrams A1 tanks, but we don't export all of them. We have certain classified. Uh, information that has led to superior armor. And as I talked to one person when I had a security clearance, basically, we have a theory that an Abrams tank that's updated with American improvements will not be destroyed by an Abrams tank that we exported. In other words, we don't export the full protective reactive types of ceramic armor. It seems like that would be very wise that we have what you just said. But it, it opens another question. Or do we get to the point where we're going to have to make a decision and they're a lose-lose this decision where we say, well, we're engaged with China now and we have these international conferences, they're graduates. I think 38% of the Stanford engineering department is international. And by international, I mean, the vast majority of those are from China. Do we say to them, you just can't come over here because you're doing things that we can't live with or do we lose influence with the hopes that one day you know when we keep by these cross fertilizations and they get to meet us we get to meet them we collaborate that there will be people within that lab because of this influence that will say don't do that and they will have the power is it better just to cut them off oh that's such a that's such a a, a good and difficult question um but i so a bunch of facts around it that if I could if I could offer them, yes. you know we have we have a very substantial differential uh, tuition structure for for these kinds of situations. So you know Australia, I, I want to say seventy or eighty percent of their entire uh, higher education budget is the foreign is supported by the foreign students. They would go bankrupt if there was a sudden mm -hmm. change in that. So in some ways, we've made ourselves uh, you know addicted to the uh, to the foreign students. 
Um, that's point one. Point two is, I, you know, I think I think Westerners. I mean, we're look, we're optimists. That's that's why we came to to this, you know, completely uh, uncivilized, you know, forest and and decided that it was a good place to start a new home. Um, I think the concept that by exposing people to Western democracy and exposing them to freedoms that we will sort of convert them in a soft way is kind of been our operation for a very long time. Um, I'm not sure that the facts, given the you know the the, the what com- what the Communist Party is capable of doing and what they're showing they are doing, I- I'm not sure that that's going to be successful in the face of the dictatorial uh, powers. That are that are being put to bear in you know inside of China itself. Yeah, I, I I've talked to a number of people in Congress, and who've listened to you and others, and and because the People's Liberation Army has a lot of control over this lab, if not all the control of Chinese military, and given the fact that of the disaster of the COVID-19 virus, and given the fact that they are now engaged in gain of function that would be even more dangerous and it's under control, or at least people in our government have taken the worst case scenario that this type of research, if not not applicable to COVID-19, is certainly applicable to its successors that will be continuing with the prior knowledge of what happened with COVID, the disaster that it, it, it leads to a bioweapon, that that's what they're doing. And if that were to be true, it, you, it, it has enormous geostrategic implications. And I don't know how you, you, I don't know how, I mean, it makes for cost, I don't want to use even use the word cost-benefit analysis, but it makes nuclear weapons look sort of obsolete, given some of the viral uh, implications that you mentioned of, of increased lethal lethality and these engineered potential viruses. You yeah, said I mean, the I end think... of civilization. I mean, it's, it's, I, I'm just thinking as a historian that in 532, Justinian was pretty much 60% in Byzantium. Constantinople had, had recaptured the Western empire. He was all the way in Italy. He got rid of the vandals. And it was a chance to recombine the Roman empire. And then the black plague, the, Lysk, very uh, opportune place, Constantinople, cross-fertilization, Bosphorus, Sears, Dardanelles, uh, Hell's Pond, Sea of Marmara, Asia, Europe, Africa. And it wiped out 500,000 of the 800,000 people in Constantinople. And that was the end of it. And then the Byzantines recovered. They were attacked in the Fourth Crusade. 1204, they were sacked. They thought they could still recover. They were. 1341, the plague hit, and it it wiped out half the population. And when the Black Tuesday of May 29th, 1453, there was only 50,000 people left in Constantinople when it fell. And that was the end of of Roman civilization in Asia that had been 11. Those two plagues really destroyed it, and for good. So what you said, as soon as I heard you say that, it was, wow. This has happened before, we, 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 and, but these were natural. We wouldn't dare want to tinker with something that could recreate these civilizational ending plagues. Well, that's exactly right. You, you, you've hit on exactly that. And, and on a percentage basis in terms of the deaths, I mean, this, this was not nearly uh, what, the, what those two events were that were, were civilization changing, as you so, so accurately, uh, accurately described. Um, in fact, I was, <laughs> I was just... Not, to show you the full the full circle here, I, I just I just flew through Istanbul, which is not Constantinople for a reason, as you, as yes. you say. Um, kind of interesting, interesting. Um, yeah, there was there, only but... seven thousand defenders on the wall, and they held out for six weeks. And there's contemporary descriptions in Italian and Greek. It's very tragic to read this huge city that had this enormous, the greatest fortifications that were ever created in the Western world. And it was, there was pasture and land inside the wall. It had never recovered from the, uh, the 1340 to 1350 second round of the plague that had almost destroyed it 800 years earlier. Yeah. And um, gosh, it's scary. It really is. Yeah, I mean, when I look at the recent history, I think uh, there's a very interesting uh, events between 1995-1999 that I think China watched and they said, you know, this was maybe the starting point of their efforts in the area of 
of biological activities. Um, the WHO had come to the conclusion in 95 that smallpox was taken care of and that the two the two laboratories that still had, you know, virus, live virus, that is the United States and Russia, uh, that there was a move throughout the WHO and, and all the member states except for those two saying, hey, we need to destroy these now that the world is free of smallpox. What China watched was that both the United States and Russia accelerated their research on smallpox in light of the fact that the WHO said maybe it should go away. And there was actually a resolution passed in 90, 1999, unanimous resolution, except for U.S. and Russia, that said they should be destroyed. And of course, neither did. Uh, they never, neither did destroy it. And I think China watched that and said, wow, if I want to play on the world stage with this new, you know, the new generation, biological weapons needs to be the space I go into. And, and that, that was the reason that they didn't destroy them. It was the idea that they might give further enhancements to biological weapons. You know, they. Uh, I don't have confidential documents around yeah. the reasons they weren't destroyed. I know they weren't destroyed. Uh, I think I think there's you know reasonable people who know have more information than I do who say that it was because both both wanted to be sh wanted to have a, a defense against a, an offense if it became a bioweapon or created an offense etc. Et so uh, interestingly, both countries at the CDC we had we had this incident about ten years ago when the, some vials of smallpox were found in a desk drawer, um, and then in September 2019, interestingly. There was an explosion and fire at the Russian uh, laboratories in which the, uh, the smallpox is, is stored. Uh, we were told, I don't think any Western person was in there, we were told the smallpox samples weren't ever breached, they were safe in the freezer. But I mean, it is interesting that that uh, that th this particular set of, uh, of events, I, I think triggered China's interest in this because it's it's much much cheaper than doing nuclear work i mean there's a paper from 30 scientists in switzerland they said how fast and how cheap can we make sars-cov-2 they got some baker's yeast that you know some bread yeast to make sourdough bread they spent five thousand dollars to order the pieces they spent seven days making it they said in the future they could they could make it in five days this paper was published in april 2020 and it's been downloaded 150,000 times victor that's this scary. paper about how to make SARS-CoV-2 in five days for five grand. I, I, I live in a very rural community, and it's about 90% Mexican-American. I think I know personally 10, 10 people who died at it, or heads of their families. They were in their 50s. They had A lot of people had comorbidities with some obesity and diabetes, but they were still in the prime of life, and they got COVID. And the idea that something way across the world in a lab could find its way all the way into the United States and very quickly and then sort of wipe out whole families and destroy people's lives. It's just incredible, this globalized, interconnected world that can do that. And then when we have these guardians in this last hour, I, I know you're optimistic and that's why you're doing what you're doing, this invaluable research, but there is a note of pessimism that these people die all over the United States that had wonderful lives ahead of them. And yet the guardians of science were unable to stop it. And they were, in fact, to this day, there are still people in the United States that suggest that this gain of function research has value uh, that trends, you know, that it's much greater than the dangers. I just can't believe how anybody could come to that conclusion after what this virus did when they're working on even more lethal and infectious variety. There's something wrong, I guess, what I'm saying. It's not just in China, Stephen, is it? There's something wrong that would want the United States to keep smallpox, I think. I don't know what it is, but it's there. It's uh, you've talked on ethics so much on publication, but I don't know, maybe medical school should have an ethics program or something. I'm not a big fan of anything post the Nicomachean ethics by Aristotle because he's kind of said it all, but my God, people have a lot of power in their hands that we don't even know what they're doing or if there's or who's supervising it. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. And I'm not a psychologist or anything. I mean, I think there is a, I think it's exciting to be playing God. Uh, it feels powerful to play God. Um, make a virus that won't kill mice, and then suddenly a month later you have a virus that'll kill every mouse in your laboratory. It's it's a very strange mindset. It's a very dark mindset, but I think it's 
it's unfortunately more universal among some groups of scientists than we would like to like to know. Let me we're at the end of our hour. We've been with Dr. Stephen Quay, and he's come agreed very generously to come back and uh, review many of the things he said in August were very prescient. They've been absolutely confirmed, and uh, he's in high demand now because he was one of the first brave voices. And I think one of the reasons that you resonated so much that you combined it, combined an academic background and you know so-called pure research with an applied all these companies you created for the benefit of mankind, and I think that symbiosis really gave you a, a practical side that some of your colleagues that are, you know, as gifted as you are, didn't have. And that was really, you've done a great service for the United States. And um, I hope you'll come back in, in, in maybe three or four months and maybe you can enlighten us that there's some good news. Do you have good news? Yeah, I'd like that. Leave, Stephen? Yeah, no, no, I, I would certainly like that. Uh, there's some, yeah. some things going on behind the scenes that gives me a little bit of encouragement and, and uh, hopefully uh, they can come to fruition and we can we can get together and uh, and, and lay it out as, as nicely as you do. You're, you're a wonderful guide to these conversations. And, uh, well, I really I appreciate you coming. And uh, Dr. Stephen Quay, we're going to have him back. Thank you for listening. <laughs>